Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. So much. Nominees are Miss Susan Hayworth for I Want to Live. Deborah Carr for Separate Tables. Miss Shirley MacLaine for Some Came Running. Next, Rosalind Russell for Auntie Mame. And Miss Elizabeth Taylor for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. All right. Here she is. The lucky, lovely Susan Hayward. I want to live. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we're going to be talking about the 1959 ceremony year win for Susan Hayward in I Want to Live. And I was very excited to do this episode because I always think of the episode of the Golden Girls whenever they have the caterer come in because Sophia is about to get married and uh, she locks herself in the closet and uh, they have this big moment between her and Dorothy and the caterer comes in and he's this sassy queen, <laughs> you know, the biggest stereotype according to the 80s. Mm-hmm. And he goes, wow, this is... This is more moving than the climactic speech from Susan Hayward and <laughs> I want to live. And then Blanche Devereaux being very homophobic. It's like, wow, you're ready to just fly right out of here, aren't you? <laughs> and he's like, well, excuse me for wanting to live, Anita Bryant. And <laughs> I never understood the quote. I never understood the reference. So I was very excited to do this year. Um, very quickly, uh, the 1959 Oscars uh, Best Picture went to Gigi Best Director went to Vincente Minnelli Liza Minnelli's father who he was gay wasn't he I just assumed so. Yeah, I think, well, you know, the Garlands, they're all. <laughs> uh, best Supporting um, Actress went to Wendy, Wendy Hiller for Separate Tables. We'll talk about that. Best Supporting Actor went to Burl Ives for The Big Country. And Best Actor went to David Niven for Separate Tables. And we will also talk about mm-hmm. that. Um, today, I am joined by a friend, uh, a comedian. He has an upcoming comedy album called Dick Jokes for Jesus, uh, which you guys got to stay tuned for. Um, he's been on the guest, uh, a previous guest on the podcast, and we always love having him. It's Joe Arsenal. Hi, Joe. Hi, Kyle. Great to be here. Yes. Thank you for so much for coming back. Now, see, the last time that you were here, you were going on, uh, like, that day, a flight to Portugal. <laughs> and <laughs> coincidentally, today, you're flying to... Uh, I am going to Bangkok tonight. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I, And I'm going to the airport extra early because... Fun fact about international travel, uh, Canadian uh, airport officials are trained, rightly so, to be on the lookout for people who uh, unfortunately travel overseas for, as child sex tourism thing, right? Like, Oh, wow. And uh, I'm not shaving my mustache for this trip, <laughs> so I just want to allow enough time to prove I'm into grown adults, you know? Yeah, that's fair. That's smart. I love that. That's... If I need to document it, I'll just show who I reply to on Grindr. Yeah. It should take 20 minutes. <laughs> Those are part of your travel documents. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Just... You know, when a, a middle-aged white guy goes to Thailand alone for a month, uh, you just got to be prepared <laughs> for the questions. So, like, the next time that I have you on the show, I wonder, will you be jet-setting off to next time? Uh, I don't know, but, like, comedy rule of three, right? Portugal one, Thailand second. I'm going to think of somewhere really funny and... Uh, Book me on the podcast the day I'm flying off. Well, this is kind of, I mean, I feel like we're two thirds of the way through your eat, pray, love. (laughs) So I don't know. Where are we going to pray? I don't know. Uh, 
Uh, uh, oh, I thought you were going to ask me where I was going to love. Or where are you going to love? Well, I feel like Thailand is the love. Well, it's no, that's not the order. But I did, <laughs> but I ate terribly in uh, Portugal. So maybe I'll have terrible sex. No, sorry. Maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll pray badly, I guess, in Thailand. Okay. And then I'll find a place to have a bad love for the third one. We'll, we'll workshop it. It will work. Okay, we'll figure. We'll let, we'll, we'll next episode. Mm-hmm. Next episode, let me know. You know what it ended up being, which which one we can designate it as, because uh, eat is Portugal. Unfortunately, yeah, <laughs> I, I love love and respect to Portugal, except the food. No, that's I. Oh, you didn't like that? Oh, really? I love Portuguese chicken. Mm-mm-mm. Yes, I do. Um, okay, so we are talking about Susan Hayward this year, but uh, we'll just jump right into the nominees. And I always like to say to the listeners, this is in no particular order. That's usually just the order that I watch them in. And our first nominee is going to be Elizabeth Taylor in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. This is another Tennessee Williams adaptation. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I am very... Um, hit or miss with Tennessee Williams adaptations. I either love them like Streetcar Named Desire or I hate them, Sweet Bird of Youth. Um, so very quickly, um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, a brick um, who is played by the very sexy, yummy Paul Newman, uh, also married to Susan Hayward, very famously. Brick is an alcoholics ex-football player who drinks his days away and resists the affections of his wife because why he's gay, but because <laughs> of the production code, they could not say that in the 1950s. A reunion with his terminal father jogs a host of memories and revelations for both father and son. And this movie was a ride. <laughs> I wanted to watch this movie first because... Um, I believe at this point in Elizabeth Taylor's career, this was when she was becoming Elizabeth Taylor, like the Mm. big known movie star, but her private life was kind of eclipsing her professional, not only abilities, but also her work. And um, by the time that they got to Butterfield 8, when she had won that Oscar for basically having a tracheotomy and almost dying, and <laughs> the Academy was like, oh my God, sorry, we didn't give you an Oscar for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof or, or for whichever movie. It's uh, At this point in her career, she should have won at least one Oscar, you know, maybe for this one. And a lot of people always said she should have won for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, so I just kind of want to see it. And watching this movie i definitely see the potential for the greatness of elizabeth taylor that's to come Mm. in something like who's afraid of virginia wolf or cleopatra for example do i think that she should have won that oscar maybe we'll save that for the end but i would say elizabeth taylor is doing a lot in this picture because this movie was so heavily adapted and ignoring the obviously queer coded narrative um that it the fact that they took away the um the the gay references of Paul Newman's character and that Elizabeth Taylor is married to a gay man I want to see that movie and so watching this movie and knowing what it could have been mm. I find it very disappointing to watch and so Elizabeth Taylor I think that she's giving and she's doing her best with what she's given um, but I kind of hated this movie because I know what it could have been and what it could have been I think it would have been a lot more interesting um, Joe what did you think of this movie and what did you think about Ms. Taylor's performance well it's interesting we so I have a history of this movie I uh I first saw it when I was 20 with my third boyfriend, and I did not 
get it. And uh, it hits a little different post-marriage. I'm very glad I revisited it with the wisdom of uh, middle age. Um, I... uh, and I also, this was the one I l- watched last. I just watched it uh, the other night. And after four other uh, movies from 1958 that I had mixed feelings about in various ways, as we'll get to, but I felt they were all hindered by like the last gasp of Hollywood's ties to, the, to stage theatricality. Mm. And Elizabeth Taylor was this generation coming in with Paul Newman, although she was more... Uh, more of an innovator than he was. Uh, But the new generation of realistic acting from actors who grew up watching movies not tied to stage productions, uh, they were revolutionizing everything. And I I found it so electric coming after the four stagier, more old-fashioned seeming movies that Mm. I really loved watching it. And I was able to forgive the one huge flaw that prevents (laughs) it from being a masterpiece. Totally. It really is. Um, question, is she, because, you know, of course, I have to go back to the Golden Girls here. I'm literally wondering, because, like, in a sitcom, every character in a sitcom is an archetype. Mm. And I'm like, is Blanche Devereaux Elizabeth Taylor in Cat on a Hot Tin mm. Roof? Like, Big Daddy every five seconds. And so horny, start to finish. Start to finish. And so I think... Thought, which, by the way, became so funny whenever gorgeous Elizabeth Taylor was throwing herself at, uh, you know, beautiful Paul Newman. And he was like, no, like, I don't want to have sex with yucky Elizabeth Taylor. And we all know that behind the scenes, he was actually ambivalent. No, yeah, sure. And so um, I just I love the way that her character, you know, I think I have the okay. Uh, there was a reference to, no, Elizabeth Taylor, no, where is this? Oh, the name of Burl Ives' character, Big Daddy, is said 104 Mm -hmm. times during this movie. That is practically once every minute on average. (laughs) That's insane. And I would love to make it my ringtone if I still answered phone calls. (laughs) Like, every time Elizabeth Taylor says, Big Daddy, like, it is just golden. I wonder why Big Daddy was so obsessed with her. (laughs) Um, Elizabeth Taylor proceeded uh, with filming even though her husband, Mike Todd, was killed in a plane crash on the same day that shooting began, and everybody, like, really applauded her for her... um, uh, resilience and mm-hmm. professionalism. And I'm like, well, it was the 1950s, so denial was the fragrance. <laughs> um, Keep calm, carry on, film the movie. Yes. And as I mentioned, the references of, um, to homosexuality, the references to homosexuality in the original play were removed from the screenplay to comply with a Hollywood production code. Um, when Paul Newman agreed to play the role of Brick Pollitt, he was under the impression that the movie would simply adapt the original script into a screenplay and when the screenplay deviated wildly from the stage text over Tennessee Williams objections Newman expressed his disappointment also the original choice or um the the person that really wanted this role was Marlon Brando Mm. and then he said if anybody can do justice to this role other than me it would be Paul Newman so high praise but also a little shady 
But he's right, and I Elizabeth Taylor, I believe, does really overshadow and outshine Paul Newman in this movie. I agree. See, imagining Marlon Brando in the in the role, I think they would have been evenly matched. But, I think so. But this screenplay, as adapted, to take out the the work, you know, to give an excuse for people's behavior to make them not gay, but we all know really they're gay. It wouldn't have been worthy of their talents. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love the way that everything was phrased. It's beautifully written. Like I'm not living with you. We just occupy the same cage. That's all. And um. I kind of love and respect, because I mean, this is, of course, a movie from the 1950s. So obviously, um, in modern times, it's like if your husband has absolutely no interest in you, you're like, well, you know, we're heading for a divorce. And the way that even the family during this time is like, it's your fault, Elizabeth Taylor. You don't have any kids. You are not pleasing your man. And, and, um, the way that she handled those scenes uh, evokes sympathy from the audience because you can clearly tell that it's not her fault. But that also sort of does speak to um, why a couple would get married. And you can't just simply blame it on the woman. And I feel like that was, I mean, not like feminist, but just mm-hmm. sort of the way that it's presented. It's that she's the sympathetic <clears throat> character. And I love the way that that was sort of framed for her. Um, and I also love that she just kept trying and she just kept throwing herself at him. And it was, um, you know, uh, like a little sad at some points. And I just A little? Think, yeah, you know? And I, I think that uh, to see Elizabeth Taylor do those kinds of scenes and, and, and be that vulnerable, I thought it was um, a very entertaining and I think it was very, very impressive and very effective. Yeah, I revisiting this movie, I, I didn't... Like, I, I'm new to the opinion that Elizabeth Taylor was a great actress on the scale of Marlon Brando. But with this, I'm I'm really convinced. Uh, she's clearly, you know, she's playing a very smart person in very constrained circumstances because of where and when she was born. And she's figuring out what good outcome she can have in life. And she keeps coming up with one answer only, if only he'll fuck her. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. And then in the end, he's like, I will fuck you, Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> and they're like, ending, the end. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like I see, I see, uh, you know, movies at this point were just on the cusp of being able to be honest about things. They did not yet have the, you can, the power to be honest about. You can sense the creative, the creativity, the director, the writer, just coming so close to telling the truth and feeling restrained, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we're three years away from Victim, 1961, which blows it all out of the water and you can tell the truth about homosexuality as of then. Well, tell me a little bit about that movie because I I don't know what Victim is, so I don't know anybody for listening. So Victim is a film from 1961 starring Dirk Bogard, holds up today as a brilliant uh, uh, film noir thriller about blackmail in London. And you think they're gonna be coy, and it it feels like a major plot twist when they Wait, say blackmail. Like I'm I'm blackmailing you, or about a black male? <laughs> no, 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 blackmail. Like I will expose that you oh, are gay. Okay. If you just, don't give I me needed money. to collect because the way you said it, I was like, wait, like a black male? Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, you know, this is why we do this over text. Yeah, <laughs> much clearer. Um, Anyway, it's a, a shock to the system to see a movie this old where they say what you're used to movies having to hint at. He is homosexual and is being blackmailed for it, and we should have sympathy for him because blah, 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 which it, it's not, it, it's barely even dated. It's as smart as we are today. Interesting. And 
is a breath of fresh air coming after Cat on a Hot Tin Roof for Separate Tables, which this theme is going to come up again. Oh, yes. Separate Tables. What a what a gem. But um, I also think that this is one of these movies where Elizabeth Taylor just has she just has this like extreme presence because I don't know if you've seen like Butterfield 8, but it it's just the most hilarious campy film and I stand by that win for her because if you watch it today it's just a slut shaming vehicle that if you watch it like ironically you're like this is actually hilarious like like um mommy dearest it was intended to be serious but when you watch it you're like this is in this is absurdist and I think that um there's this thing with Elizabeth Taylor where she just has this insane presence with Kind of, specifically Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, I find that the dialogue does become a bit tedious. I mean, do we need to say Big Daddy 104 times? (laughs) Yes, please. You know what I'm saying? Like, that, it it starts to become like a little repetitive and, and, and dry, but she just delivers everything with this this new sense of vitality in films during this time, because I have seen a lot of 1950s movies and Elizabeth Taylor coming into it. Like you said, it's like the new generation of acting and the new style of acting. So there's this sort of exciting, youthful energy to her performance that she brings to this world compared to the other nominees. And I just, um, I really, really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. From the moment she smeared that ice cream into that kid's face at the beginning of the movie. And I think this movie deserves a lot of credit because we've talked about the writing and the acting, but this is a very good stage adaptation. It is tough to answer the question, how can I make this visually interesting and compelling while still being a movie that takes place in two rooms? And but was it visually interesting? I don't know. <laughs> I thought it was. I like There was a long wordless sequence at the beginning, and mm-hmm. um, I, I was never... You know, my my eye was never bored. Part of that is the choice to make it in color, which mm. uh, was really unusual for uh, a prestige stage adaptation at the time. But the studio did it literally to capture Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor's eyes. And fair, that's worth the millions it cost. The violet eyes, as they say. But were they violet? Her PR says yes, but they're blue. It's fine. Yeah, they're blue. It's, it's okay. fine. They're very pretty. Um, I also finally get the Simpsons reference whenever Smither, um, Smithers is like on a crutch and there's a woman, the beautiful woman on the chaise and she's oh, yeah. like, make love to me, Waylon. <laughs> and he throws the whiskey in the fire and he's like, no. And then <laughs> basically Mr. Burns comes out screaming like Marlon Brando in Streetcar and he's like, Smithers. Mm. And I'm, as a kid, like, what? And now I'm like, oh, I get this reference now. Um, because he was gay. Um, <laughs> she spends the entire movie basically defending herself and her position and the fact that she did not like go full murder on that family. They were so frustrating, except for Big Daddy. We all love Big Daddy um, for more than one reason. Uh, but I thought that she was the best part of this movie, and uh, but I will never watch this movie ever again. I found it terribly boring, and the fact that they didn't go to the homosexual, like the actual um, script, like what it was intended to be, I think that that hurts it, and it makes it less interesting. You know, I, I loved the movie, and I will watch it again because you know we're we're both right about it. But it is the best gay movie of the fifties, <laughs> and that's right. the best you can get. And that's a generation what they had. And I'm able to appreciate the crackling dialogue and. You know, a sympathetic movie from artists you can sense knew what was going on. Right. And I I found the 
This wasn't my favorite Paul Newman performance, but I felt Burl Ives was as good as Big Daddy as Elizabeth Taylor, mm-hmm. and I was so shocked that he didn't get nominated. And then I found I out. I thought so too. But it's because he was nominated for another movie the same year, and he won for The Big Country. For A Big Country. So this must have been one of those years when, in the you know lead up to the campaigning, it you, you know have he's so being promoted credits. for two yeah. big roles that year, and it could have gone either way. I, like Alicia the, Vikander or Cher. Yeah. So if he if he was better in the big country than this, I really want to see that movie. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. He he was very very good in um, that film. Although to the point that you said the best gay movie of the 1950s, I would say A Star Is Born with Judy Garland. <laughs> oh, so fucking boring. But never mind. <laughs> Glad I wasn't your guest that week. Uh, <laughs> well, many many disagree with you. Um, okay. So. So um, let's move on and talk about Russell and Russell in mm. Anti-Mame. Oh boy. Okay, well, first of all, this is definitely the the, the drag queen performance of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so very quickly, an orphan goes to live with his free-spirited aunt, Auntie Mame, and conflict ensues when the executor of his father's estate objects to his aunt's lifestyle. And basically, this movie has a lot of up and Ups and downs, peaks and valleys, a lot of valleys, because <laughs> because um, I will say that Rosalind Russell is delivering. She's this absolutely fabulous character. She kind of has like a Betty Davis look, kind of similar energy. At one point, they even say in the movie that uh, um, Warner Brothers had adopted the rights to Auntie Mame's life and that Betty Davis was going to be playing her. I Mm. I don't know if that was just because... Like, she truly reminded me so much of Betty Davis, like, the voice and the look that Mm -hmm. maybe it was like a little wink and a nudge to the audience. I don't know, but I I thought that was kind of uh, funny to catch. Um, She... Also, uh, it made me beg the question because this reminded me so much of Maggie Smith in Travels with My Aunt Mm. from uh, the 1970s where Maggie Smith is this eccentric, crazy aunt. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, she reminds me of like Yzma from The Emperor's New Groove played voiced by Eartha Kitt. Just sort of this like fabulous woman that's always Mm -hmm. wearing a turban. (laughs) And Maggie Smith, the movie is called um, directed by George Cukar called Travels with My Aunt. I'm like is this based on Auntie Mame? I don't know. Uh, but it seemed like a very similar performance. Um, this is also, just to mention drag queens, I think that Manila Lazan <laughs> should do Auntie Mame as like a bit I th- on, on, on Snatch Game. I think she would nail it. Um, but th- the performance being nominated makes absolute sense to me. I love the character. I love how... Uh, welcoming and non-judgmental she is and she 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 tells everybody to keep an open mind was she really that kooky to 1950s standards yes to today's standards watching it you're like okay but again you have to remember what time it's from because Mm -hmm. basically it's like she bought a buddha statue and they're like whoa you're so crazy (laughs) um and, and and that's fine but that's that's what the movie is, because it is a, a product of its time and, and baby steps in, in throughout history and stuff. But the issue that I have is that this movie 
was two and a half hours, <laughs> and there's not enough story here going on because oh once, my God. well, once she loses all of her money because of the stock market crash, you're like, okay, now we have struggle, now we have conflict. How is she going to get through this? She literally had a full staff at home while she was like working a part time job at like CVS as a cashier, and that only lasted for like a half season to about Christmas. Then she marries a rich guy and then boom, everything is amazing for her again. Yeah. So the movie relies on her physical comedy and the big comedic moments that happened, like when they were chasing the fox, which by the way, was just such a, a sad thing to watch that poor <laughs> animal being chased around. Cause it is a real fox. Um, and, and you know, she can't wear the boots and then she, she can't ride the, the horse properly. And this is why I get her, her Golden Globe for Best Performance in a Comedy win and also this Oscar nomination because the comedic acting is there and the big larger-than-life character is there, but the movie and the plot is not. So this movie was so boring to me and Mm -hmm. super painful. But I think Rosalind Russell is wonderful as anti-mame. Yeah, you know, you got me really curious when you mentioned that you thought there was an element of Betty Davis impersonation here because... IMDb tells me that I've seen Rosalind Russell in other movies and I don't remember her. Mm. So to me, she's not a star, I guess, unless she's channeling <laughs> Betty Davis because, yeah, I, I get it too. I I feel like I got to see a Betty Davis great performance here. And I also felt like I got to see the first five episodes of a sitcom where the pilot was great. Right. But I wouldn't binge this. 100%. Like, okay, the setup, the introduction of characters... I I thought I was watching the great gay movie of the 50s for the first 30 minutes and totally the problem is the next two hours yeah (laughs) I mean things briefly got funny when uh, she was widowed because her husband fell off of one of the peaks you mentioned into one of the valleys yeah was that I thought that was a joke at first you know what mishandling tone why not John Waters got it from somewhere (laughs) yeah true I Uh, um but no yeah because he's yodeling (laughs) <laughs> and then he's like, you And then you're like, did he die? You're right. It was kind of a, like, it's a joke to be that flippant about a major character's death, but it actually amounted to a storytelling failure because it, I, I too was a beat behind. Oh, that really did happen. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. There's she was something. wearing, I think she was wearing black and that's how like you could tell she's in mourning. Yeah, there may have been a line. There may have been a line of dialogue too, if I recall. I'd kind of tuned out by that point. <laughs> but um, I'm. This really makes me want to watch Travels with My Aunt because George Cukor, legendary homosexual, of course, if he saw Anti Mame and thought, "I want to do this right," like, good on him for trying to make a gay boy has fabulous aunt who helps him escape his life of drudgery and, uh, you know, I mean, the gay the boy in Anti Mame isn't gay, but you know. The audience was. The audience, absolutely. Well, I really do think that you would like uh, Travels with My Aunt because uh, it's... She had no... Everyone was shocked by the Oscar nomination. It wasn't a terribly competitive year, but I know that Maggie Smith didn't even show up to the ceremony Mm -hmm. because she's like, no. She's like, I'm not winning this Oscar. So why would I like travel across (laughs) the world, you know, for... um, uh, for for something that I know that I'm not going to win. But yeah, it is directed by George Cukar and it is the fabulous Maggie Smith. So I would recommend giving it a watch. I, I liked this movie. I think we need to bring back the uh, gay boy with fabulous aunt genre. Like uh, I'm trying to think who I would cast today. I mean, Meryl Streep would obviously get the role if she wanted it, but I'm thinking Susan Sarandon would have more joie de vivre. Susan Sarandon is going through like a really weird 
I feel like this is so rude to say flop era, but like, <laughs> I remember like, cause she was, I remember in the nineties, like she was like the prestige actress and one Oscar nominated um, role after the other, although pff, the client does not count. Yeah. <laughs> that was just a joke nomination, but um, you know, and then I think the last like prestige film that she was really in was The Lovely Bones mm. with directed by Peter Jackson. And then after that, she kind of just did like made for TV stuff. She was that fabulous character in that uh, it was with Ray Fiennes and he was playing like a gay guy. Um, it's a I, I'll have to look it up, but um, she, uh, she was nominated for a Golden Globe. It's it's on Crave. If you oh, have good. it's 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 awesome and it's like a three episode limited series and it's great and she's playing the fabulous aunt in that but then I feel like you know Susan Sarandon kind of just fizzled out she had a bunch of pilots that never went anywhere movies that flopped and then Feud came out and that was a big deal and then again she's kind of just back to it, and it's strange the way that you can be this huge megastar prestige actress in one decade and then you're kind of like just in nothing in the following decades. Well, then again, I mean, I just kind of did the math in my head and realized I'm a generation behind because Susan Sarandon would be in great ant territory now. Mm. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, if there's not as many great roles for women in their, like, maybe not 80s yet, but 70s, right? Like, well, you know, a lot of working people choose to retire around then. That's like, that's not a, that's not a, let's not ascribe a, career fizzling to uh, what may be a choice to just chill. Maybe, I but I mean, she got, if you're putting out movies and TV shows, I don't think you're trying to chill. Oh yeah. I get, well, unless it's fun to work up, you know what? I just hope Susan Sarandon is doing exactly what pleases her. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Oh, you know, and that's another thing too. I find that like, Whenever we pick the things that we want for our own career, it's never the thing that we like. It's like when you submit like jokes or a writing package to a producer and they select the jokes and they always pick the jokes that you hate. And then you're like, ugh. it's like maybe maybe it's a little bit of that. You know, I don't know. But um, yeah, hopefully Susan Sarandon is somewhere making all of the right choices for herself. And she's very happy. And now I'm just bummed out because I realized that if she had lived the perfect Fabulous aunt now would be Brittany Murphy. Rest in peace. <laughs> Aww. Um, so reportedly the character of Auntie Mame was based on Patrick Dennis's real life aunt, Marion Tanner, a good-natured eccentric who lived to be nearly 100 years old. Miss Tanner's advice to those seeking a more interesting, adventurous life was to never be afraid to try a new experience and to keep an open mind about everything and everyone. Um, the movie's line, Life is a Banquet and Most Poor Suckers Are Starving to Death, was voted number 93 on on movie quote by the American Film Institute out of a hundred and Gloria Swanson tried to buy the movie rights to the play. Even in the mid 1950s, Swanson was looking for a big follow-up to sunset Boulevard, but Russell and Russell already owned the movie rights and would not sell. This film was a great comeback for Russell and Russell. Um, so a thing that I very much liked about this performance and this movie is that this movie is very campy and over the top, but I love that the director is aware of that and they kept that going throughout where Mommy Dearest, for example, was 
not in, it was supposed to be a prestige mm. drama, but it's actually like the Citizen Kane of <laughs> camp movies. Uh, so, but that wasn't intentional. Where in this, you're like, it's campy, it's over the top, it's big, but they're aware of it and they keep it intentional throughout. And I really enjoyed the aspect of it because the what makes this performance so wonderful is all the big, loud, comedic moments that Russell and Russell is bringing to um, the to the film. Um, and I just wish that there was more struggle for her. I think that it would have made the character so much more interesting, so much more compelling. Um, and uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful performance. Just, just not enough of a plot, and uh, just not enough conflict. Yeah, I, I'm. I think that um, Rosalind Russell kind of really, she really wanted to win this year. It was, uh, I think, her fourth or fifth nomination. I've not seen any of the movies she'd been nominated for before. Um, but she is definitely the best thing about this movie. I had seen Anti-Mame before, and I I remember, well, I gave it 7 out of 10 on IMDb. And when I was re-watching it, just like with Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, I thought, is this movie way better than I noticed at the time? Right. And then it stops being good pretty abruptly 30 minutes in. Yes. Um, but the funniest thing is it's so colorful, and the set pieces are so over-the-top and camp. I remembered this movie as a musical. I I was I was it took me like 20 minutes to realize wait there hasn't been a number yet and there are none coming. I isn't that weird that I just assumed there was musical numbers in this movie that lost like I remember watching it to the end but I probably had a video game going on at the same time <laughs> if I'm honest. It's that kind of movie. It's that kind of movie. But it I, does seem like there were were queued up for a musical number, yeah. But um, the direction is camp. The screenplay could go either way. Rosalind Russell does a great job of having it both ways. Every bit of this movie that is deeper than surface gloss is strictly in her line readings, her use of patience and hesitation to deepen moments. It's, um, it's pure craft. It doesn't feel real and natural in a way that Elizabeth Taylor can achieve, but mm-hmm. it's... You know, she she was on Broadway in this role prior to the movie. So what we are seeing is, you know, professional acting of her generation at its highest caliber. And it's great to see. It is good to see. Um, okay, so let's move on to our next nominee. Let's talk about Deborah Carr in Separate Tables. Oh, do we have to? I mean, <laughs> you know, um, the last film that I had saw Deborah Carr in was From Here to Eternity with like that mm. famous beach scene oh. with Burt Lancaster. And we, uh, I think my guest that week was... Um, uh, Catherine Niker and we were describing how much we loved her in this film, but there wasn't enough of her. Mm-hmm. Like she was maybe in the movie for like 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And her character in that movie is American. And she also is that sort of like, she's been through life and she's just having no BS from anybody. And she just wants what she wants. She says what she says. And and she just has that like divorcee energy, even though she's not divorced. Mm -hmm. And we loved her in that film. And we probably would have given her that Oscar that was for uh, Audrey Hepburn, Roman Holiday. We would have given her that Oscar, but there just simply wasn't enough of her in that movie. Right. Um, And so watching Separate Tables, I was really excited because... um, I thought, okay, like she's a, an amazing actress. Um, I think Be Kind Rewind did a wonderful video about her always being like second place because she's been nominated like six times. Mm-hmm. I think she won like an honorary Oscar in the 90s, but you know, those are like the deathbed Oscars. You did not win an Oscar. Yeah, you did not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Hey, Best Actress listeners, enjoying the show? Want to hear more? Access our entire catalog of Best Actress episodes from the very beginning, ad-free, by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com bestactress. By subscribing, you will also gain access to new episodes one day earlier than their normal release day. Best Actress Podcast will always have 10 free episodes available, but with the release of a new episode, the oldest will go to Patreon, where you can access it anytime with your subscription. Come on, ladies, it's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe. So Separate Tables, the story of several people are told as they stay at a seaside hotel in Burnmouth, which features dining at separate tables, like literally. And Deborah Carr is the mother of a very, very conservative old British bat. And daughter. She, yeah, she's the daughter. So did I say mother? <laughs> I, yeah, don't worry. I got Sorry, you. I, I have been drinking. No, <laughs> I um, had a brain fart. Sorry, the daughter. She's the mousy shy, meek, con- quiet daughter of so the, meek. <laughs> yeah, the uh, stuffy, conservative, old British crow. Um, and there's really not a lot of her in this movie. Um, she plays uh, opposite David Niven, who won the Oscar for this film, for Best Actor, and with 23 minutes and 39 seconds of screen time, David Niven's performance is the shortest ever to win an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role, and the fourth shortest to win in either leading category. Contrary to popular belief, Anthony Hopkins did not break Niven's record with his win for Silence of the Lambs. Hopkins' performance was 24 minutes and 52 seconds long. So it was close, but yeah. A lot of the things that I read about this movie were not specifically about Deborah Carr. Mm -hmm. They were more about the Academy Award trivia about it. And these are the things that I wrote down and some of the things that I found Um, very interesting. So, for example, Wendy Hiller, Mm -hmm. who won the Best Supporting Actress um, Award when she was interviewed by the London News Chronicle about her win, um, Hiller said that she thought that the Academy was crazy Mm -hmm. for giving it to her. She said, quote, All you could see of me in that picture was the back of my head. Unless they give some award for acting with one's back to the camera, I don't see how I could have won. They cut my two best scenes and gave one to Rita Hayworth. She went on. Never mind the honor, though I'm sure it's very nice of them. I hope this award means cash. Hard cash. (laughs) I want lots of lovely offers to go uh, filming in Hollywood, preferably in the winter so I can avoid all this horrid cold over here. Mm -hmm. And I read that trivia <laughs> before watching the movie, and I'm like, ooh, I'm going to be watching her throughout this film. And you know what? Listen, her head was not turned... Her back wasn't to the camera yeah. that much. It was, but it wasn't turned to the camera that much. I totally understand why she got a supporting actress nomination. Yeah. I haven't... I don't know the other nominated performances, but I can see why she was nominated. Um, 
Don't you wish modern nominees had her PR? <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's so funny. And um, so David Niven uh, hosted the Academy Awards ceremony for 1958. Um, and he is the only person to ever win an Oscar where he was also hosting. Conflict um, of interest. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, the third successive year in which Deborah Carr was nominated for Best Actress for her performance after um, The King and I and Heaven Knows Mr. Allison. And this was qu- considered this film, uh, Separate Tables, was considered quite daring in its day with its frank discussions of sexual topics generally considered taboo, which I can understand uh, given the Hollywood production code. Anyway, mm-hmm. I said all of my facts. <laughs> uh, what did you think of this film and what did you think of Deborah Carr? So um, I quite liked the movie. Much like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, this is a plea for tolerance and understanding for homosexuals (laughs) as far as you could go in 1958 and um it's slightly less coy than than cat on a hot tin roof because this the editorial the change they have to make from the play which was explicit um the big scandal in the story is that david niven plays i believe a retired pensioned military guy in england and he is he was a major yeah, yeah in the military and in the style of British boarding houses on the seaside, he was this this hotel was actually his home, and he was worried he was going to be kicked out because he'd been arrested for cruising in the movie theater. Ah. And the only difference they make to the description of the story of, of what happened in the movie is they just change the gender of who he was accused of cruising. Right. They go into great detail about what cruising is in a public place and we all everyone with half a brain knows oh they're talking about gay men because this is not actually what a a thing straight people do yeah i was confused by that i didn't know what you're saying right now i'm like okay that makes sense because i was very confused yeah yeah he was arrested for trying to pick up a woman at a movie theater uh in ways that you know usually work if you're going after a man right what was it rubbing her elbow well, and not saying that doesn't happen to women in movie theaters, <laughs> but uh, but um, it was the the message to intelligent audience members that we are really making this character gay, but we can't we can say every word but one was so clear, and it was pretty good. Um, and David Niven, you know, great job, but category fraud. Come on, the leading man in this movie is Burt Lancaster, who I'm always thrilled to see. Absolutely. Now. Let me talk about the performances in the movie because Deborah Kerr has something I like to think of as a, I call it Shania Twain face. Like as an actor, you want to have Meryl Streep face, which is memorable and distinctive. Mm -hmm. Shania Twain, Deborah Kerr, beautiful women. I can't recall what they look like when I'm not looking at them. Totally. And she's a star. I've seen many movies she's in, but I finished the movie thinking, wait, which one was she? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, who was the woman in this Rita Hayworth movie and why was Rita Hayworth not nominated? Right. She's clearly the best female performance in the movie. Glamorous and every line reading is interesting. Robbed because she's too sexy. And then I found out Deborah Carr had played the annoying young woman who I didn't remember much. And then I thought, oh, this must have been early in her career that she had to take a role like this. Why no. the hell did a star take this role? Yeah, right. I think... The big thing for me is because every time that I've seen Deborah Carr in a film, she's American. 
Oh, really? She's playing an American character and she does it very, very well. And so to see her from here to eternity and then to see her in this as this like British, like, you know, oh dear, like kind of fancy. Mm. It was a total transformation for, for me. I, 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 I think I looked online. I'm pretty sure she is British. Yeah. So there, she's doing an accent somewhere. I don't know where <laughs> she's doing it, but she's doing an accent. And so I think that the fact that I couldn't recognize her from film to film, um, I think speaks to the acting, but the fact that Deborah Carr is in this movie as a leading actress is hilarious because mm. I think she maybe has like five or six scenes in the whole film. Um, and they're all literally talking about a man. Yeah. The whole entire time. And, and the, the big climactic moment is that she stands up to her mother at the end when she tells her to leave the dining room with her and she says no. And for her character, that's supposed to be a big deal. And you're like, I get that, but is that enough for like an audience member to be like, what a great movie. Like it was so lame. And, um, I just think that, uh, Compared to the other roles I've seen her, it's it's like whenever Ingrid Bergman like won for Murderer on the Orient Express. Mm. Um, it was just like it was just like uh seeing her play that type of sheepish, mousy, like, you know, immigrant with an accent from like Eastern Europe. It was like, whoa, who's that? Oh my god, that's Ingrid Bergman. It's like, let's catapult awards at her for not being this glamorous. Maybe that was what led to the nomination here because Deborah Carr is so unassuming in this film. Um, but I think that she did what she was supposed to do. She does have like big moments. It's all very dramatic mm-hmm. where she's like, I hate him for what he did, but I love him. I do. You know, that, that those a little over the top, a little silly, uh, but I thought it was a good performance. I just don't really think there's much here. Yeah. I was, I was left thinking, Oh, she was pretty good. The star is Rita Hayworth. Uh, yes, absolutely. Who should have won for Gilda, but that's another story. <laughs> um, but I'm so surprised to hear you didn't know Deborah Kerr was British because I don't think I've ever heard her do an American accent. Mm. Uh, the movies I know I've seen her in were The Red Shoes, which she should have won an Oscar for, and um, I think The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, two Technicolor British masterpieces that were ignored by the Academy. Interesting. And I think her reputation as a great actress from Britain before British productions that didn't have good, I guess, American PR were really considered for Oscars as much as they should have been that may have um, helped fuel sympathy for her with votes later that she was an actress they had to catch up on she was due yeah repeatedly like I think it was I think every nomination she didn't win for was a sorry we missed the red shoes yeah I kind of feel like in contemporary times they're doing that with Marianne Cotillard Mm. where she had won for La Vie en Rose but then she released a lot of really wonderful French films over the years and then she eventually even Penelope Cruz as well um, where she has all these amazing movies and the ones that she gets nominated for you're like what? Like I don't know if you saw Parallel Mothers. Oh I loved that one. Really? I didn't quite understand the nomination for that one and for Marianne Cotillard I kind of, but also didn't understand the nomination for Two Days, One Night. I thought it, she should have gotten it for like um, like Rust and Bone or there's other films. And so sometimes I feel like they're trying to play catch up by being like, okay, like we have a spot open. Like let's give it to Marianne or let's give it to Deborah Carr. Like, I don't know. But that's a, that's a recurring theme with the Academy. Yeah. I mean, even if it's not catch up, if you're British, then like you 
it's a shortcut to going on the list of who do I vote for this year? Oh, well, what did Samantha Morton do this year? What did Emily Watson do this year? Yeah. They had that for a while. Yeah. And Deborah Carr had that then. Um, I, per, I loved the romance and relationship between Burt Lancaster and Rita Hayworth. Mm. I thought that um, uh, Wendy Hiller's, like, just go for him. even go, go for Rita Hayworth. Go back to her, even though we're engaged. I didn't quite buy that, but mm-hmm. um, that's okay. Uh, maybe that's why she won the Oscar, because they were like, what? <laughs> they were like, what woman would do that? And then they're like, oh, it's so crazy and revolutionary. Let's give her an Oscar. Um, but, uh, I actually enjoyed this movie a lot. I, I just, yeah, Deborah Carr just, um, wasn't forgettable. It's just, mm-hmm. she was supporting at best and, um, good, decent performance. Good for her. Yeah. At the end of the movie, when I looked at the movie trivia, I was like, oh, Wendy Hiller won an Oscar. Which one was she? And then I saw which character and I was like, oh yeah, she did a good job. Yeah. But- I did really enjoy this movie too. And as I said, because of its being the most, this was the most uh, active gay rights attempt. The most, sorry, this is the movie most strongly in favor of a gay rights argument to date. And therefore it's a valuable museum piece. And I was surprised that we get this pretty romantic and well-written and passionate romance between Lancaster and Hayworth as well. Mm -hmm. And Rita Hayworth is one of my all-time favorite actresses who never was nominated, but uh, what, you know, her sin was being so beautiful that every, well, I get a little jealous looking at her and, um, uh, and she just made it look effortless. Yeah. She's a great actress, and this was a great chance to appreciate her. I was wondering, because I did look up, I was like, I wonder if she was ever nominated for, well, anything. And she was nominated for some Laurel Awards, but, like, yeah. never... Um, the ones you can bribe for. Yeah, exactly. But she never was nominated for the big ones, which is you know, it's sad. Um, okay, so let's move on. Let's talk about Shirley MacLaine in Some Came Running. <laughs> this is her first Oscar nomination. Um, a veteran, played by Frank Sinatra, returns home to deal with family secrets and small-town scandals. And while he was drunk on this return home, also picked up Shirley MacLaine in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And Shirley MacLaine in the film is not... A prostitute. She is not a call girl, but it almost seems like it's like implied that she is, and she's very uneducated. Where uh, Frank Sinatra is this accomplished like author, and he's very smart and an academic, and then he meets a girl, uh, Miss Miss French, who is his academic equal and and hmm. and they get along but then he she doesn't want to be with him so then he goes back to Shirley MacLaine and ultimately like just says the worst things to her and like kind of settles with Shirley MacLaine but while all of this is happening in the background Shirley MacLaine's abusive boyfriend from Chicago comes and finds her somehow and then when Frank Sinatra's like, hey, get out of here, you abusive whatever, <laughs> um, he comes back with a gun and kills them both, and it's this tragic ending. And I think that um, the reason why Shirley MacLaine was nominated for this is because she's just the sad puppy of the movie <laughs> that you just slowly see die. <laughs> and you feel so 
sad for the sad, stupid, uneducated hooker with a heart of gold, not actually hooker girl. That you're like, oh my God, this is so sad. It evokes such sympathy that she needs an Oscar nomination <laughs> for this. Or perhaps, um, the, or those are just my thoughts. But um, the the movie is directed by Vincente Minnelli and the, you know, the gays. We know how to make things look very, very pretty. <laughs> and in this film... Um, uh, Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra, there was the scene with the, the Ferris wheel at the fair at the end. I guess they had to like move the Ferris wheel just slightly over to get the shot because he was so particular about how everything looked visually mm-hmm. to make everything look perfect. And Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin got so upset that in the middle of the shoot, walked out, went into a limo and like flew away to <laughs> wherever because they just, they lost their patience with him. Good on them. Yeah. And they just couldn't take it anymore. But the actual, just in terms of the cinematography and like the, the visual aspect of it, I think it's, it's stunning shot um i love how shirley mclean is this like scrappy little thing with the most garish makeup you'll mm-hmm. ever see um you're about i wrote down 40 minutes into the movie and she's had a total of three minutes on screen and then at the hour and a half mark you see her one more time she really doesn't come into the movie for the most like in a leading way until kind of like the last like 45 minutes and then it's mostly involving her yeah but she is very missing from this movie it yeah i thought category fraud and then i was like okay not quite yeah near the end you're like okay here she is um but there's this thing that i love about shirley mclean and again you know you're talking about with elizabeth taylor the new generation of actors and bringing this sort of new vitality and Mm -hmm. and and style and reality into Mm -hmm. um acting it's um It's this thing where she has this sort of... Everybody in the movie is acting like it's a play. And I feel like Shirley MacLaine's character is like, I believe she's that uneducated Mm -hmm. girl from Chicago. Like, she's so real. She's the actor from the future in this movie from the past. Exactly. And so she seems like a real person where everybody else is very theater actorly. Like, I I can see the acting, but with Shirley, I just believe it. Mm. Um, And I think she she was really, really wonderful in this film. Um, but uh, what did you think? Well, um, okay, I, I I hated this movie. <laughs> you, you start by looking at its pedigree. Okay, the people who made a lot of money and won a lot of Oscars for From Here to Eternity wanted that again. Right. Option a bigger novel from the same guy, a big name director. Uh, but it's such a tragedy. Like, this movie might have been believable and I might have had some engagement in the scenes, even though all the characters are types and all the plot developments and concerns and motivations are cliches. Um, But if the lead had been played by someone who could convincingly play someone raised in Indiana, right? They gave this movie to an Italian to direct who, and I think any native English speaker would have said Frank Sinatra is not from Indiana and does not sound (laughs) like it. Right. Like, Get Hollywood was not short of leading men who could do an American accent that is not New Jersey. And they found the one who they couldn't say no to for some reason. Maybe they were scared. Well, he had a very, very negative reputation. People did not like working with him. Um, I read uh, for Magambo, um, uh, oh my God, the lead actress from uh, Ava Gardner mm-hmm. literally aborted a baby. 
Frank Sinatra's baby that she had inside her because she hated him so much. <laughs> That's insane. Um, but the Vincente Minnelli and Frank Sinatra clashed, clashed famously during the filming of the climactic... Oh, no, we already said that one. Sorry about that. Um on Frank Sinatra's acting style, Vincente Minnelli wrote, Frank hated to rehearse. Prior to shooting each scene, um, I would work with other members of the cast until the last moment, and Frank would then be called in. We'd go over the scene once and shoot. He gave me everything that I wanted in the one take. Um yeah, that's good PR. Yeah, right? Um, it was during the making of this film that Shirley MacLaine found herself welcomed into what would later be called the Rat Pack fraternity that included Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, her co-stars in this film. MacLaine says the group known as the Rat Pack was actually called the Clan back then. Okay. Uh, <laughs> why did you change it? Uh, and the <laughs> they uh, and the term was given in the 1950s to... Um, the, the, uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart and his pals, uh, Lauren Bacall. So I don't really have a lot of things about this movie because the majority of, uh, uh, yeah, the majority of the things was just how amazing everything was for Shirley MacLaine and how well everybody got along on, st- on, on set. And so I don't really have a lot of interesting well, things to say about this film. I do. Well, <laughs> I hope. Shirley MacLaine was so bubbly. She is the highlight of the film. You can see a very smart woman playing as well as she can a character who is poorly written and much less intelligent than she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, she does what she can with the role. And I found it depressing that this is the best role Shirley MacLaine could get in 1958 because, um, fun fact, Shirley MacLaine has had the female lead or biggest female part in three best picture winners. Um, later would come the apartment in terms of endearment. But she was two years out from around the world in 80 days. Right. She was a star and... Uh, the, like, I can't, like, we can't, I can't overstate what a nothing role this is, mm-hmm. but we got to see Shirley MacLaine. And also the, uh, I think this helps explain why, uh, Minnelli won the best director Oscar this year for Gigi because Os- directors get more credit when they do two big productions in one year. Right. Cause Gigi goes in my books as second worst best picture winner ever. Really? And um, I'm just, I, I feel vindicated that some people must have agreed with me because it's the rare best picture winner with a female lead. And she is not someone we're discussing today. <laughs> Snubbed Leslie Caron, deserved it. Um, oh God, we just watched Leslie Caron in the movie Lily mm-hmm. about the puppets. Oh my God. It is an acid trip. It is so weird. Honestly, I, I was like, maybe she should have won for that one just for committing to this movie. Wait, so you said that, um, Gigi was the second worst. So what was the worst in your opinion? Uh, my least favorite, uh, best picture winner is going my way. It's just patronizing (laughs) audience, like insulting fluff. And that's coming from a Catholic. It is a bad movie. (laughs) Okay. Um, well, we'll have to check it out. Um, (laughs) It will never be on your best actress pod. Yeah. Fails the Bechdel test spectacularly. I bet. Um, so, uh, yeah, like I said, you know, like at one point Dean Martin like fully calls her a pig to her face. So she's like, we're engaged. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you're engaged to this pig. And she basically, yeah, she's, she's like this, this sad little puppy that's like being abused in the kennel and you feel so bad for the poor defenseless little puppy. And then in the end, the puppy gets shot and it's just this, 
over-the-top, tragic, sad figure, but Shirley MacLaine is delivering, and yeah. she is the best part of the movie. And um, I thought she was really, really wonderful, but I do have to agree with you. Um, I kind of hated this movie, mm-hmm. um, but the, it the look of it was beautiful, beautifully shot. Um, I, I loved the garish makeup, um, but just not enough of her uh, for most of the movie um, and just too, too tragic, too sad. Yeah, I kind of like the scenes Frank Sinatra wasn't in, but that was very few of them. Like, very few. You know, when I listen back to my comedy performances and sometimes when I'm doing a bit that I've only done three or four times, I can hear some hesitation in my voice as I my brain is working over time to remember the words of the joke. And that's the entire tone of Frank Sinatra's performance. Mm. He's struggling to remember his lines, and that's <laughs> all I got in every scene he's in. Oh, I loved it. That's funny. Um, okay, do you have anything else that you want to add? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's talk about our winner, Susan Hayward in I Want to Live. Hang so, on, you're not pronouncing it right. Okay. There's an exclamation mark. To Susan Hayward? In I Want to Live! You live! Um, fair. Uh, okay, so Susan Hayward, this is actually, this is very interesting because, so, so I had previously seen Susan Hayward in the film I'll Cry Tomorrow, uh, <laughs> where she plays the actress Lillian Roth, and she's like an extreme alcoholic. And that was the first time I'd seen her in a film, and I was like, who is this? Are all her movie titles her motivation? Yes, exactly. Yes, there's the theme. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, who is she? Like, she is so captivating and so... Um, like she really... She really goes there and she handles a lot of really dark subject matter. Um, you know, uh, I'll cry tomorrow. There's themes of there's scenes of su- attempted suicide. There's, mm-hmm. um, extreme alcoholism, violence, abuse, depression, things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I don't really think that you're talking about those kinds of things in the 1950s very much. And Susan, especially for an actress, you know, I think. And so I was very, very impressed with her in, in, um, in that film. And so I was very excited to see, um, I want to live because again, I wanted to see the quote that the queen was talking (laughs) about in the golden girls. Uh, but also, um, I just wanted to see this film. I was very excited. So, um, I want to live is about (laughs) a prostitute that's sentenced to death for murder and pleads her innocence, uh, which, um, so basically, okay, so basically this is based on a true story, and Susan Hayward is portraying this woman who allegedly had nothing to do with the murder. She was, she she knew about it, but she was not part of it. Uh, but um, I wrote, there's a fact here that just killed me, and it kind of killed, I shouldn't have read this during the movie, but mm. even though she portrayed Barbara Graham as a tragic victim of circumstance, Susan Hayward later admitted that after doing extensive research on the real Graham, she most likely was guilty of the murder of Mabel Monahan. Mm. So when I read that, I'm like, okay. So <laughs> then I kind of thought like, ooh, maybe they should like remake this movie because we all love like murder films, <laughs> murder documentaries and stuff like that. I think I Want to Live would be uh, kind of a anti-hero story if she actually did commit mm-hmm. the murder. I think this would be kind of, and I'm like, who would play her? And I thought like stunt casting Olivia Coleman <laughs> would be kind of fun. I don't know. I'm getting off topic, but um, so in this film, she is the 
hooker with a heart of gold. <laughs> and um, it's funny because uh, the production code, as we've mentioned many times um, on this episode, you would have to very heavily imply or use a lot of cutscenes. Um, and in this particular film, they had to do that a lot because you're dealing with a lot of very dark subject matter. You're dealing with murder. You're dealing with prostitution. You're dealing with... Um, uh, like women in prison and the mm. reasons why they're there. And so it is a very, very dark film. You even see her die mm-hmm. um, in the gas chamber. Spoiler. Yeah, right. <laughs> so she wants to live. She doesn't get to. She does not. She doesn't get to. But um, th- this, is a, this is a very, very dark, um, this is a very, very dark film. Mm. And I think that Susan Hayward absolutely nails it. I think that her desperation is palpable. I think that every scene that she's in, she's giving 110%. And um, it's, I, I'm, I'm definitely, definitely uh, a fan. Um, what did you think? What did you think? So I had a mixed take on this movie. I, um, I, my first impression of the first half of the movie was I was surprised by the visual dynamism. It looked at, a lot like the best uh, French film noirs of the 50s. with uh, It really captured the feel of a grimy bar with a cool jukebox. And I wasn't expecting that from a Hollywood production with a title that leads you to believe, well, the market they were going for with that title was a market women that is usually pandered to. And this is uh, the director, Robert Wise, who later did uh, big musicals like, I think, Sound of Music Guy, wasn't he? Um, either that or West Side Story. But... Definitely a big musical guy, mm-hmm. uh, and not who you expect, not, not whose name you expect to see on a gritty crime drama. Mm-hmm. But I felt they made a big mistake. Sometimes adaptations think that loyalty to source material or truth is a virtue in the art, and this is a complicated story of first this happened, then that, and. I, it was a failure of storytelling because I swear I was trying to pay attention. I'm not sure if she was guilty or not based on what we were seeing, based on what we saw. Mm. I'm not sure whose relation, you know, what her relationship to all the other people was. So I just enjoyed the texture and sat back. Um, but I, I couldn't really follow it. Once she got to prison and they began the mechanism of the execution, I thought to myself at first, oh, holy crap, they're trying to be this is a slightly less woke Dead Man Walking. And then I remembered Dead Man Walking cast Sean Penn in the role of two black men. So maybe this is the more woke one. Right. This is an incredibly realistic and researched movie trying to show to Americans what their justice system does. Don't look away. This is what execution looks like. And that is a really daring and important and worthy thing to do with a film. However... (laughs) We, I agree with you that Susan Hayward is uh, giving it her all in every scene, uh, but she, like, I just, she is someone who might have, if I have the time right, grown up with vaudeville, and you can see it in the performance. This is, this is big Rosalind Russell style stagecraft in a movie where it's just not called for. And honestly, she was too young for the role, but I just wondered what Elizabeth Taylor would do in that role because there are so many lines of dialogue that feel like they're plucked from real life, especially in the scenes in prison when she knows she's going to die where they are just not delivered like a real human being living her life would. And in a movie that takes such pains to be visual, to have total visual uh, verisimilitude, 
Did I pronounce that? I've only seen that word. Anyway, hmm. it just, I, I thought Susan Hayward ruined the movie. Oh my God. <laughs> really? Okay, well, that's a hot take. <laughs> that's, hey, that's what you brought me back for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do think that her best scenes were in the courtrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, anything with her lawyer. Um, I also liked whenever she was trying to c- come up with an alibi with uh, that guy who was an undercover cop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that she kind of has that charm and spunk um, and almost like, um, you know, uh, um, Rosalind Russell and Auntie Mame, where it's like um, she has that charm and that sort of interesting thing about her and she knows who the character is, um, you know, and what I like is that this is there's a little bit more of like a plot in this one Mm -hmm. and there's uh less valleys i think that the valley of this film is in the last sort of 30 minutes where it's like they're delaying the execution where it's like we're trying to um file for an appeal yeah like you're a lawyer just and then she's like oh am i gonna and there's this will she won't she yeah and then no, he didn't get it. So you are going to be executed. And then five seconds later, it'll be like, oh, well, now your lawyer's having another meeting with the judge. That just became really boring and repetitive mm-hmm. um, for me. So I think this movie could have been condensed a little bit. But overall, um, also another criticism that I had of this movie, this is not on Susan Hayward's performance. This is just the Hollywood gloss of every Hollywood movie from this time. Yeah. What prisoner is showing up or waking up every morning with like perfectly set curls mm, yeah. and a face full of makeup? She looked stunning. And yeah. I'm like, no, you're on death row. <laughs> you're not gonna give a shit about making your hair into the big bouffant with like your pearls like that was another thing that took me out of it a little bit yep. um, but just in terms of the way that Susan Hayward was described or Barbara Graham as she, who, she's, who she's playing is described as like a pathological liar I could see that because she just constantly seems like she's so indifferent towards things but if you're a pathological liar like inside is like a totally different person that's operating the controls but that what you're saying and the way that you're presenting yourself is way more like oh I'm fine it's fine like this and that and you're being like I don't care about this I don't care about that and if you are a pathological liar I, I believe that you would be that way and of all of the performances I found this one to be the most compelling Hmm. and the one that um, really had my attention. Although Rosalind Russell also had my attention. It was just a terrible movie. Hmm. Um, But I, I um, was hoping that they would show the execution scene because, you know, it's the fifties. I'm like, will they show that? Hmm. And they did. Um, so I, I, I liked that. Um, but yeah, I, I think for me, there's more to like in this performance um, than, than have criticisms um, about. I really think that they should remake this kind of movie. Charlize Theron would also be great in this role. I mean, I guess she kind of already played it in Monster as like a murderer who gets <laughs> sentenced to death. But the point is, is that like, I, I really think this is a movie they could remake um, today. Uh, and... I really, really enjoyed it. So I think we have total opposite views on this one. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you mention that she's a pathological liar. And I I, I found the character boring because the performance seemed, you know, in every scene I felt I was watching an 
actress determined to do her best. And uh, the last time I was here, we were talking about Julie Christie and Darling, which I think is a much better example of uh, someone who lies and is self-interested, but we still have to sympathize with a bit or the movie doesn't work. And uh, that's not what I saw here. This was just finally my chance to shine. And I, uh, I, I mean, I, it's interesting, the competition with Rosalind Russell here, because they were both... Um, uh, Deborah Kerr as well had been nominated several times, but not one, but she was much younger. They, the, they were both in their 40s, I believe, and had been nominated many times, and um, it, would, it would have been rude not to give it to one of them, right? Uh, so obviously they gave it to the one with the most acting, but it really was just, uh, you know, I'm surprised to hear you say we should remake this because this story is so generic. Like, what <laughs> rights would you need to buy? It's just choose any ex, choose any victim on choose any um anyone on death row right i think it would be more like the real story because i think that you know as times passed you do have a lot more evidence mm. with this because the, it's presented as a tragic victim of circumstance but she wasn't oh do the same case but a movie to be side by side with this one being a bit more honest being about who complete, this woman yes. was. Like, let's yeah. let's do this correctly. <laughs> this is present her how she actually was. Well, I'd cast Mira Sorvino. It's overdue. Oh, yeah, that would be fun. Um, uh, Mira Sorvino, not Mina Suvari. No, no. Mira I always Sorvino. mix those two <laughs> up all the time. I'm like, American Beauty? No, that's Mina Suvari. Um, all right, well, do you have anything else that you would like to add to Susan Hayward's performance uh, before we select who we think that the Oscar should have gone to? I'd like to add authenticity, but it's a bit late. <laughs> I want to live. Um, okay, so, Joe, you are my guest of honor, so please reveal who you think that the Oscar should have gone to. Oh, I'm so glad to be here on a year when I disagree with the Academy, because <laughs> I think the Oscar this year should have gone to... Elizabeth Taylor for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Okay, why? She was, you know, uh, I th- I think any, I, I can't see how anyone could watch these performances and not think this is cl- far and away the greatest artistic achievement. Uh, and I think she would have won if it hadn't been the sense that they'd get many more chances to give her one. And they were right. And they wanted, to, you know, there were two contenders who were deserving for career achievement. Mm-hmm. Just it's, it's night and day. This is modern acting. This is the new generation, which Shirley MacLaine was also a part of, but obviously not a contender for that nothing role. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a this is a young, energetic artist seeing what you can do with film acting if you leave the legacy of the stage behind, given a dynamite role with insane dialogue and great scene partners. Uh, I'm glad she eventually got two or three Oscars, but um, I forget. Uh, Shirley MacLaine? No, or no, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor. Did she have two? two? Yeah. Well, you know what? She deserved a third, and they should have started here. Yeah, okay, I love that. What do you think? Uh, they did say, like, historically, that at this point in her career, she should have had at least one. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what Butterfield 8 was. They're like, here you go. <laughs> um, don't die. Um, so... Uh, it's interesting because, you know, and with Elizabeth Taylor in Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, it's like 
she's definitely the best part of that movie and I do agree with everything that you're saying I just I hated the adaptation because yeah. of the production code that you could have had a much more interesting honest movie um, and so for me I found the movie terribly boring mm-hmm. uh, but I completely understand what you're saying because she she really is um, the the heart of that story um, in terms of just as a viewer as a gay viewer mm-hmm. <laughs> okay um, I think that the Oscar should have gone to Rosalind Russell for mm. Anti-Mame. I think that Susan Hayward's All Cry Tomorrow is really her mm-hmm. piece de resistance. And I think that it makes sense that she has an Oscar. I don't know if it should have been for I Want to Live. I completely understand why she won according to the 1950s standards. Um, but I do think that like her big moments um, are in the courtroom, uh, but the movie itself becomes like very repetitive. Um, I did find her to be like the most compelling, uh, but just in terms of who I enjoyed the most mm-hmm. and how much fun I had, it was Russell and Russell as Auntie Mame. I just fucking hated the movie so much, and I I want to make that very very clear. I hated this movie, but just how. Um, loud and big and clearly like travels with my aunt with Maggie Smith is clearly based on this mm. woman and um, uh, a- uh, Auntie Mame I think is also um, kind of an archetype that we go back to with old Hollywood and I can totally see why um, Gloria Swanson would want to play this after doing you know Sunset Boulevard and it's it's that type of fabulous woman character but I love her morals and the way that mm-hmm. she's so keep an open mind and she's so worldly and she's so adventurous and um, I think she's this big fabulous character and I, I think that uh, Rosalind Russell like absolutely delivers this character and she knows who this character is and i love the larger than life she's also it's um it's a comedy and i i love mm. that because her performance is heavily reliant on these big comedic moments that always is like a soft spot for me um and i think that susan hayward should have won for all cry tomorrow so uh i completely understand why she won i get it i'm glad she has an oscar um but for me just just because of how um Susan Hayward's performance in in um I want to live I want to live uh it just became um it, it was too shiny and glossy for me but an, an incredible performance I get why she won but just personal taste Russell and Russell yeah I, I I agree with everything you said about Rosalind Russell except I think I like the movie a little more than you did I oh, didn't I hated it. hate it <laughs> hated it just it. quickly went to lukewarm for the last two hours yeah. but, <laughs> but this is a big character and it would have been a rare chance for the Oscars to give an award to an actress playing a woman who doesn't suffer or sell her body that's pretty rare I think she's still alive at the end of the movie imagine that right <laughs> yeah totally but actually if I were to rank the five I, I would put Rosalind Russell, distant second, because I love Elizabeth Taylor in this movie so much. The other two, I don't know, but I would have put uh, Susan Hayward last. But I'll Interesting. G- I'm going to keep an open mind. Like I said, I you know very different opinion. I thought she ruined that movie. But I'm going to check out I'll Cry Tomorrow. Look forward to it. Very good. But I, I do think that I Want to Live was probably my favorite movie. Mm. Was my favorite movie on the list. But just personal taste, Russell and Russell. If only we had a ballot. If only. Okay. Um, Joe Arsenal, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. We'll definitely have to have you back again. Where can people find you on social media? 
Uh, if you follow me on Insta at Joe Arsenal Jokes, you'll find out if I'm playing a show or I have any funny ideas I want to share. Amazing. Uh, well, thank you so much. Enjoy your trip to Thailand. Ooh, la, la. We'll have to ask you about that whenever you come back. Um, and uh, thanks again. Bye. Thanks, Kyle. Did you enjoy the show? Want to hear more episodes? Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to access our entire catalog of episodes ad-free with your subscription. Subscribers also get access to new episodes one day earlier than everyone else. Oh my god. Go to patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe, and I will see you all at Howard's Inn.